Well, if you do have your Bibles, this morning's sermons that come from Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 31. And we're in the Gospel of Luke right now. For those of you who are visiting, we've got uh, most of the church appears this morning has gone on vacation, and several came and visited us this morning. So welcome to all you visitors here. So we're in the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 5, and... What has been so amazing about this study as we've gone through Luke is that you get to walk with Jesus and get really close to him and understand his heart, his mission, his calling, and what he's all about. And in so doing, we see this most amazing God of ours in all of his goodness and all of his love and all of his kindness. And you can't help but being drawn to Jesus. You know, even in, in the world today, most people who are not even believers, if they heard of Jesus, they, they often profess him to be a good man. Well, they should get close to him. They should find out more about him because he's more than a good man. This is the God-man who's turned the world upside down. So let us pray and ask that God would richly bless his word to us. Father, we're so thankful for your word. We're so thankful that we have this opportunity to hear from you. Father, we know that our eyes are blind and our ears are deaf unless you, by your Spirit, awaken us and help us to see and hear. Father, we want to be changed this morning. We want to be conformed into the image of your Son. We want to know Jesus more deeply. We want to know you, be known by you, and become like you. So do this. Please, not on the basis of anything we've done, but because of your beloved Son. Amen. If you ever want to see the heart of Jesus, if you ever want to know what his calling was on the earth, if you ever want to like have a, get a, a close-up story, get in the middle of a story and see how it fleshes out in really fun detail, this is the place. Because there's things going on here that where we see Jesus' calling, we see his mission, but we see it fleshed out in a real practical way that most of us can relate to. What I, what I want us to do this morning as we read through this text in Matthew and as we walk through it is see the Jesus that truly loves sinners. I also want us to see what it is our calling is in life. What are we called to as the church? And here we're not only going to see the Jesus and what he's come to do and was called to do, but we're going to see what we're called to as well. So here we have this starting in verse 27, where Jesus calls Levi his disciple. Verse 27, after this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. So here we have Levi, this tax collector. You know who Levi is? He's not the maker of the genes. Levi here is, in other places, in Matthew is, I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, in the Gospel of Matthew, that's who Matthew is. Some people, many scholars have debated, why is he called here? In Luke and in Mark, he's called Levi, Jesus calls Levi, and then in Matthew, he's called Matthew. 
Well, it's believed that Levi was the name he had while he was a tax collector, but after he repented and started following Jesus, everybody knew him as Levi. He wanted a new name, gave himself Matthew to disassociate himself with probably the crook he was before. But what we have to understand about these publicans and tax collectors is that they aren't these innocent people who simply do their obligated duty and, you know, they must collect taxes, and so they do. It's really important for us to understand who is this Levi guy. And Jesus calls this Levi guy. Well, I guarantee you there's not many people here in this room who would like Levi. You wouldn't like him because these people, often within Judea, they were... Typically, they would hire these Jews who worked for the Romans. Right there, you have a problem. They're seen as traitors. Not only that, but you've got to understand that this is how the system worked. They weren't really like a ta- like they weren't exactly like the IRS. They didn't function the same way. In the city gates, all cities had gates. They're walled cities, and the gates were the places of entrance. And at the place of entrance, they'd stick a booth, a table. And if you came in with goods, they would look and evaluate those goods and charge you a tax or a tariff on those goods. They're more like a customs agent, in a sense. They'd also have a booth at bridges that they wanted to tax to cross the bridge or certain roadways. And these were known as the tax collectors. Throughout Scripture, you're also going to see that there's publicans. Well, who are the publicans? Publicans were over several tax collectors. They are higher up. On the chain. So what happened is these tax collectors had to give a percentage of the taxes, a certain amount that came in to Rome. So they're required that, say, let's just say it was 6% of whatever goods they had, they had to tax and be given to Rome. Well, this is what would happen. What would you do if you wanted to earn a little bit more cash? Well, up the rates a little bit. And it was completely arbitrary. These people would say, yeah, they look and assess your goods, and it's going to require you, it looks like you got 10 sheep here, let's two of them. Well, one for Rome, one for me. And this is really what was happening. According to the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, the tax collector paid a fixed sum for the taxes and received for himself what he could, what he could over and above that amount. The ancient and widespread curse of arbitrariness was in the system. The tariff rates were vague and indefinite. The collector was thus always under the suspicion of being an extortioner and probably was in in most cases true. The unusual combination in uh, in a publican, uh, uh, sorry, the unusual combination in a publican of petty tyrant, renegade, and extortioner made by circumstances almost inevitable. Like, that's exactly who they were. The circumstances lend themselves to that. They went on to say, this was not conducive to popularity, (laughs) as you can imagine. It would be kind of like the IRS auditing you every year and randomly telling you what you owed. You weren't even certain of the percentage. You just had to go, oh, Lord, have mercy. Here it comes. And then they don't even have to explain why. Because this is how they have complete authority in this area. How would you feel if the IRS did that to you? 
I know plenty of people who are pretty upset the IRS takes anything, right? How, how would you feel if it was completely arbitrary, they took what they wanted, and they were just filling their pockets, and you knew it? Would you like those people? Levi was one of those guys. <laughs> Levi was one of those guys, and Jesus calls him to follow him. Which in those days, here's what's interesting. Jesus sees Levi at the tax booth. He saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the booth, and he said to him, follow me. Now, this would be kind of odd, because if someone walked up to you and said, you're doing, you're doing your work, you're at your office desk, and they walked into the room and they said, hey, follow me. I mean, where do you want to? Where are we going? What are you doing? Pop machine? <laughs> Was I called into a meeting? What's going on? But it says here, and leaving in verse 28, and leaving everything, he arose and followed him. There's a lot not said here. This is what we have to assume. We have to understand the, the age and how this worked. Rabbis would have disciples, and they would ask people if they... They could call on people and see if they would like to follow them, basically come into their school. And if someone gets up and follows them, they believe that that rabbi has something that they desire. What's not said here is that Levi, or other words known as Matthew, he clearly knows and has a lot of information about Jesus. Everybody does at this time. The guy who's healing the blind, causing the lame to walk, causing leprosy to go away. Every sickness and disease he's taking away. That guy, who when he teaches has thousands listening to him, that guy, and you know of that guy, that guy's asking you to follow him in this way, to be his student, his disciple. Could you imagine one of the most famous and most popular guys in your country? One of the, the brightest intellectuals you've ever heard of? Talk about a doctor, the best doctor in the land. He comes up to you and asks if you would follow him. And so what are you going to do? <laughs> well, you would, if he's asking you to follow him, you're pretty excited about the opportunity. And you end up following him. Because otherwise, Matthew, in this particular case, he's not going to leave everything, rise up and follow Jesus. Would you just, hey, I got a good paying job, everything's great here, making lots of good money, and uh, some guy walks by, don't, not sure who he was, and he said, hey, would you follow me, leave everything you have, and follow after me? Matthew, at this point, would have said, uh, no thanks, busy, weirdo. He would have done this, but he does do it. But then here's something fascinating right after this. So he calls, Jesus calls Levi to discipleship. Now Levi calls Jesus to a party and all of his friends. Look at verse 29. And Levi made him a great feast in his house, which we, uh, you know, often, when we have a great feast, and a, there's a large company of people coming, as it says here, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with him. That's what we call a party. Levi immediately puts together a party. And we don't know exactly why Levi put the feast together. It's like Jesus calls him, let's have a party. How are we to understand that? What's going on there? Well, this would be Levi is going off to school, to college. 
Levi's been called to go follow this guy. He's going off to college, and so he decides to throw a party, a going-away party. Fellas, I'm going to follow. I've been called, and I'm going to follow this Jesus, and I want to gather all my friends and family together, and we're going to have a party and celebrate. The other thing we have to understand is that Jesus calls these guys to take to leave everything, which means he would have taken a portion of his money, he knows how much, and thrown this big party, and the, less he, the rest he would have had to have given to the poor. Give it all away. So here Matthew, uh, Matthew is throwing this big feast at his house, just like we might do in, a, in our own setting. If we were going heading off to, to college, we might call our friends and family together and throw a big feast. But in this particular case, we have... A bunch, who are his friends? A bunch of tax collectors, it says. And others, we're not sure who the others are. Well, the others probably like hanging out with tax collectors. They're sitting around, and there Jesus is in the middle of them. Picture this, you're having a big party, and they're all there, and Jesus is in the middle, and you're walking, looking from a distance. He's with all these other tax collectors. He's smiling, drinking, eating, laughing, telling. You know, he's probably telling stories, also finding out a lot about the people around him. If you observe this, you see Jesus in the middle of a bunch of people that nobody really likes. Having a good time. At this party. But I tell you what, everybody there probably would have wanted to get to know him. After all, if you had a cocktail party and the most fam- one of the most famous guys in the land shows up, he's the one everyone's talked to. He's the one who's, like I said, Causes blind to see, the deaf to hear, lame to walk. Cast demons out with a single word. So everybody wants to get to know him. you got to love Matthew, though, right? Here Matthew wants to expose his friends to Jesus. He calls a party. I want you to know, hey, guys, I'm leaving tomorrow, and I'm going with Jesus. And I want you to see that and celebrate with me and celebrate Jesus with me. I know of, I know of this guy who throws parties. And he throws parties and he has one caveat. He says, if you want to come, tells his friends, you're, you're past to come. You can come, but you have to bring one non-Christian with you. And, and he wants to do this and he does this because he wants friends or friends and family. He wants to, them to meet Jesus. And today in meeting Jesus, you don't just meet Jesus by saying, hey, we're going to imagine the center. No, you meet him by getting to know other Christians. And if Christians are walking and following Jesus, they get to meet Jesus through them. Because he's dwelling in them, working through them, and they get to see something remarkable happening in people's lives. You know, if we walk with Jesus and we know Jesus... Jesus is living in us by the Spirit, working out through us. There's something that can be fairly attractive about that, especially if we're not a bunch of hypocrites. And we get people around that, and it becomes attractive. This is what Matthew wanted to do. He calls his friends. He wants them to meet Jesus. But then something else happens here. Because there's always party poopers, right? And in this case, the scribes and the Pharisees show up. And then the scribes and the Pharisees, they call Jesus to account what is going on. Look at verse 30. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We don't know exactly how this took place. We don't know how this happened. Because how did they 
say this. There's no way they want to get near these people because they're unclean. And they don't want to associate, not only unclean, these people are sinners, these people are nasty people, and why would you go ever, ever go around them? So apparently they did something. Maybe they called the, the disciples over and said, come over here. What's he doing? Explain that to me. Disciples probably went, not sure. <laughs> don't know. We don't ask. At least yet. Maybe some other time, but we just, we just roll with it. We're here at, at the party with them. But here's something we have to realize. That you and I probably would have been standing with the Pharisees and wondering the same thing. We might have been saying, what is he doing? I can't believe that. Is he out of his mind? It would have been, if we would have been there, it would have, it would have been awkward and difficult. Would you want to be seen at a party? with a bunch of crooks from the IRS and a bunch of snakes from Congress. <laughs> there you are, hobnobbing, d- uh, talking it up, drinking, and, and uh, having, having a good old time. And you look in the center, and, oh, look, there's Dean. Oh, he, look, at he's smiling, having a good old time. There, you know, Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid, she's over there, and uh, ha- having a good old time. You're like, is he great? You'd be off on the side like, look at him. He's enjoying it. I can't believe it. I can't be. I wouldn't be found dead in this room. (laughs) We have to understand the the scribes and the Pharisees here and realize that we all know people that by the very nature of who they are and what they do, when you go and get close to them and laugh with them and talk with them and associate with them, we think, are those your friends? Is that who you like? What happened to Dean? I thought he was better than that. I thought he was with us, you know. No, there he is. It's, isn't it easy to, to think, you know, we quickly, we associate ourselves with the sinners and the tax collectors. Yeah, I would have been at the party there. I would have been with Jesus and we, those scribes and Pharisees out there. Man, they're always cantankerous. But have you ever wanted to distance yourself from a particular group of people because of who they are and what they represent? Of course. It's a reality. Perhaps I think maybe we could associate a little bit better with the scribes and Pharisees. Not so much with those sinners and tax collectors. Because sometimes we get this idea, oh, the sinners and tax collectors, they're the fun guys. They're the ones that just, you know, they like to have a good time, and they're, they're just, they're like my buddy down the street. Well, in this particular case, these are the hated people of society. These are the crooks. These are the ones that are taking advantage of the people. And what's Jesus doing there? And what's Jesus' response? What's his response? And Jesus answered them in verse 31. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus clarifies for everyone to what he is called to do. 
Jesus wants to make something abundantly clear, abundantly clear about why he's here. This is my calling. He did not come to win my approval. He did not come to win your approval. He did not come to win the Pharisees' approval or the scribes' approval. He did not come to associate with a high class and gain a good reputation. He did not come to make everyone feel good with whom he associated. Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he speaks in terms of a medical analogy here and makes the obvious come to life. Isn't, that, isn't it so obvious? Asking a question. Who needs a doctor? Let me ask you, who needs a doctor? The sick, right? Or the, or the healthy? The sick do. The sick need a doctor. If you're doing great, feeling great, everything's perfect, do you think, man, I better get to the doctor? What do you call those people? You know, a hypochondriac might be running there just in case. But he's, he's pulling out the obvious here. The fact is, it's the sick who need a doctor, not those who are well. In like manner, he says here, and he, and he clarifies the meaning. Basically saying, I'm the doctor, and I have not come for those who are well. He's, he says, I have not come. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. That's why I'm here, Jesus said. This should be something that stirs our hearts and minds, and let me explain why. There are several reasons why this is incredible news. We learn something here about the heart and nature of God. We learn something here about ourselves. And we learn something here about our own mission in the world. There's a lot going on in this one statement. What kind of God, first of all, what kind of God would come to his, to his creation that has rejected him? To, to people who've used him, to people who've abused him, to people who've rejected him while becoming these same people who are self-indulgent and willing to hurt others, in order to advance their own gain. We are not we are not good people. But you know what we like to do? We like to think of ourselves as good people. And the problem is as long as you think yourself as a good person, well, you have no need of Jesus. Like he says, "Hey, hey, you're doing well? You're a good person? You're great? Fine." You have no need of me. You don't need Jesus. If you're, if you're not sick, then you don't need the doctor. If you're righteous, okay, hope that works out for you. But you have no need of me. Jesus has not come to call say, Hello, um, I'm looking for righteous people because I'm trying to put them together and form a band. And, um, <laughs> and yeah, become the righteous brothers. You know. uh, he's not trying to do that. He's, he's, in fact, it's like, if you think you're good, if you think you have it all together, if you think everything's great, if, if, if that's you, if that's what you're trying to be or if that's what you're trying to put on, hey, see you later. 
Those of you who do not have it together, those of you who, who find yourselves much more wretched and miserable than you'd like to admit, those of you who understand that you're, you're, you're not so good, I like you guys. That's what Jesus says. That's who I came for. That, that's who I'm pursuing. And you know what? That tells us something about the nature of God's love. In that state, as those people, God so loves us that he gives us his son, his only son. And you know what? Not so that we would remain in our sin and like that either, because this love is powerful. This love shakes you and moves you but that we would be delivered from it and turn from it. What does it say here? He just doesn't say, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners, right? Does he say something else other than that? Sinners what? Two. What does he say? Repentance. Because when I love somebody, I'm going to go after them. And when I go after them, I'm not going to leave them the same. I'm not going to leave them untouched. I am going to Call them to repentance and transform their lives is what I'm going to do. And this is what Jesus' call does. When Jesus calls a sinner, his call goes out, and the sinner who hears it, this is, he does all this work because he calls and then the Spirit works. And one of the first things that has to happen is the sinner has to have his eyes open to see and understand that I'm a sinner. And this is what Jesus does. When the Spirit goes out and opens our eyes and opens our ears, do you realize how difficult it is for a person to admit guilt, for a person to admit shame, for a person to confess that they are sinner, that they, they are not with the good guys, with the bad guys? That, my friends, is the gift of God. You cannot humble yourself. You, you cannot... See, you can say it with your mouth, but you can't believe and you can't go, oh, no. Wake up in the morning. I'm a wretch. I'm a bad guy. I'm not, I'm not, things aren't that good. I'm not doing that well. Oh, man. Man, if God was to come and to judge me right now, I would be in serious trouble. If I was to have my life exposed, there would be nothing but sin. That, my friends, is the gift of God. And the calling of Jesus, when he calls, he exposes us and helps us to see, because the first thing we have to do is see and understand ourselves as the sinner. We have to understand, I'm sick. I need the doctor. Otherwise, I'll never go. And that's the gift of, uh, of God. It's the calling of Jesus. When he calls the sinner, first thing the sinner does, he doesn't say, he doesn't say hey, let's just, let's just hang out in this sin. Isn't this sin great? No, he calls the sinner to repentance. And the sinner, he opens their eyes. He calls them and says, I've come to love you, and I want you to understand something. I want you to see this. And he, by the Spirit, opens our eyes. And what do we see but ourselves? Oh, no, in light of God. and I'm not a good guy. <laughs> oh, Lord, have mercy on me. And he forgives and he cleanses. And so this... This call of Jesus, of sinners to repentance, isn't just calling of sinners, hey, sinners, come, 
You who, who are lost and, and in utter corruption, just come and let's party together. That's it. No, it's, hey, you who are like that, I love you, and I want you to come to me, but here's the thing. I'm going to give you some eyes to see. Look at this. And you see yourself for who you really are. And you see him for who he really is. The only one who can help, the only one who can save, the only one who can deliver, and you go to him. And there, and it doesn't end there, it keeps on going. We find that Jesus' love is powerful and efficacious, and and this is when uh, we can do one of two things here. We can either say that Jesus calls sinners to repentance, and then we start to realize, okay, this is also the mission of the church, and it is, and then think that it simply means this, that all we do is get people to convert. As a conversion theology that thinks that Jesus come to save sinners, and what that means is that sinners understand who they are, they come to Jesus, are converted, and then we move on and get more sinners to do the same thing. That's only the first part. Because you realize throughout our own lives that Jesus is calling sinners, these sinners, to constantly repent. That Jesus' call goes to every aspect of life. He's not leaving any rock unturned. We just have to go to the Sermon on the Mountain. What do we see there? We see Jesus... His, when he, he calls sinners to repentance, he calls them to repent everywhere. Everywhere, in every aspect of life. He goes right at your heart, the first part of the, the Sermon on the Mount. The heart and the attitude that is necessary for, for this to come into the kingdom. And then he, what does he address? He addresses almost every area you can imagine. He addresses how we talk, how we think. He addresses lust. He addresses marriage. He addresses Uh, keeping our word. He addresses uh, how we work and how we treat people, how we treat our enemies. He addresses marriage issues. He addresses prayer. He addresses anger. It's like he's addressing everything. Yes, because he's come to call sinners to repentance. And you're messed up in every area of life. And Jesus doesn't intend to, to leave us there. He intends to transform us. So when, this isn't some just purely evangelistic call here. The church is called to call sinners to repentance. is isn't like all we have to do, those who are outside, get them to um, confess their sins and turn to Jesus. Okay, done. One. Okay, two. We did, we're, we're fulfilling the mission. This is the calling of Jesus. No, I tell you what. Sin has affected every area of life. You could, this is just step one. Welcome to the party. And now what we're going to do is we're going to continue to call you to repentance. And we're going to continue to deal with all kinds of areas of life, every area of life. And this is the mission, not just of Jesus, the calling of Jesus, but it's Redeemer's mission and call as well. What are we called to? We're called to call sinners to repentance. Does that just mean just purely the sinner outside calling them to repentance and come inside? No. It means the whole deal. It means every area of life. It's very holistic. Do you know what's easy for a church to do? It's easy for a church to slip off the point, isn't it? It's easy for a church to say, what are you guys about? And we start listing our distinctives. Well, you've got churches that are all about... They're all about liturgy. You got churches that are all about community. You got churches that are all about evangelism. You got churches that are all about 
politics. You have churches that are all about uh, psalm singing only. They get all about, we get all about these things real easily, don't we? And don't we have plenty of Bible verses to back it up? Of course we do. Because Jesus is all about all areas of life. But if we take one area and we make it everything and say, let's start a movement around this, we're not, we're not following Jesus. We're not following the calling. And I tell you what, it's so easy over time in the Christian life. I, I've done it. I've slipped off the point. And I get into my little hobby horse and I get into it. I'm all about systematic theology. Whatever it is, isn't that easy to do? And you get caught up in it, and you get, you get wrapped up in it, and that becomes the thing that you're all about. And then you start to, you love finding other Christians who are all about that. And together you start banding together, and we're all about this. And boy, we're, we're passionate about it. And we don't even realize that we slipped off center. You know why? Because if I said this, you know what the church is to be all about? The church is to be focused on and keeping the main thing the main thing. It's calling sinners to repentance. This is about God and about his kingdom and not about these, this one particular area. Yeah, of course, the Bible says a lot about family. But if we, it's all about family and that's everything we're wired up on, we slipped off, we've, we've now made the main thing, which wasn't the main thing, and now we're goofy. Of course, that's important. But it's not the center. It's not the most important. We have got to be about Jesus and what he's calling the world to. Sinners to repentance in all areas of life. Every area. I don't care what it is. It affects it. Jesus will affect it. And at Redeemer, we need to pray we need to ask God to be merciful to us that we don't get wrapped up in distinctives, in particulars, in this area or that, but realize, hey, guys, we need to always keep the center of the center. What are we about? We are about calling sinners to repentance toward Jesus in every area of life. And when we do that, when we rally around that and keep the center of the center, well, man, you start to see sinners repent. You start to see the kingdom expanding, and you begin to see God do great things in our midst. Amen. Father, we're so thankful that you have called us sinners. called us sinners to repentance. We're so thankful and grateful that you poke us, you correct us, you teach us, you admonish us, you expose our sin, and then we see your kindness, your grace, your love. Father, we ask and we beg of you that you would extend this throughout the city of Linwood and around the world. We ask that you would extend your kingdom, that sinners would be coming to repentance that we would continually grow up into Christ and 
and be repenting of all kinds of areas in our lives, then we would be committed to this. Have mercy on us and bless us, for we ask it in Christ. Amen.